I could never do what they do. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever thought, well, it's all right for them, but not for me? It can be easy to get discouraged when we compare ourselves to others. This evening we're going to start to look at the life of Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Bible, uh, one of those who God used most powerfully. And yet when Jesus' brother James wrote to some early Christians, he encouraged them by saying that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He doesn't stress the the ways that Elijah was different, but the ways he was similar. And not only was Elijah a man like us, Elijah also lived in a time like ours. And again, it can be easy to get discouraged when we look to how God has worked in the past and we can think, well, that was then, this is now. Those were the days when churches were full Things have declined so much. Our situation is so bleak. But in fact, Elijah lived at a time very similar to ours. And so his life is very relevant for the day and age we live in. And so when we come to look at the life of Elijah, we're really looking at a man like us for a time like ours. A man like us for a time like ours. And tonight we're going to look at Elijah's first appearance in the Bible in these seven verses. Uh, we have three headings and we're going to see firstly the situations God works in. Uh, the situations God works in. How would you assess the spiritual situation in our nation? Uh, well the picture is pretty bleak uh, by any assessment surely uh, we wouldn't have to look too hard to find examples demonstrating that uh, but here's just one from the past week uh, where the home secretary felt the need uh, a few days ago to clarify that silent prayer within itself is not unlawful now some have celebrated that as a victory but it's not much of a victory when it has to be clarified that silent prayer within itself is not unlawful. That in some contexts it might well be unlawful, but, but prayer in and of itself, that's not unlawful. The public celebration of all kinds of wickedness is allowed, but pray silently in public and you can risk arrest and people have been arrested for this in the UK in recent days what a what a state we are in but things weren't so very different in Elijah's time those closing verses of 1st Kings 16 set the scene seven kings of Israel have followed the glorious reigns of David and Solomon uh, we'll not go through them all, but they were a sorry lot. Solomon's son Rehoboam had ruled foolishly. The nation had been split in two. And the northern kingdom of Israel had firstly been ruled by Jeroboam. He'd set up idols and he'd set the pattern of wickedness. And uh, so here in verse 26 of chapter 16, we're told that Omri walked in all the ways of Jeroboam. 
But then down in verse 30, things get even worse when we read that Omri's son Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Uh, So Ahab is the most wicked king of God's people to date. Uh, The sins of Jeroboam were nothing to him. He married a complete and utter pagan in Jezebel and then brought her Baal worship home to Israel. In verse 32, he sets up a a temple and an altar for Baal. And, you know, we don't have to go too far in our own country to see uh, a a mosque or whatever. And you think these things being set up, they, they knew what that was like in Israel. It wasn't that Israel had never seen Baal worship before, but now Ahab is giving it official sanction. Uh, This is now state-sponsored apostasy. Uh, The government, we could say, is funding false worship. The government is funding false worship. For Ahab and many of the people, it wasn't a case of of trying to forget about God altogether, that they were happy to have both. You know, we'll have, we'll have the Lord, we'll have Baal as well. But Jezebel was different. As we'll see in the next couple of chapters, she wanted to uh, completely replace Yahweh, the Lord, with Baal. It's not too different from what we see today, is it? Uh, firstly, we're told that we only have to tolerate something Uh, We're not being asked to do it ourselves. We only have to make room for those who want to do it. But soon we find that mere tolerance is never enough. And the tables are turned. Those who want to follow God are now the ones who find themselves hounded down and persecuted. First we were asked just to tolerate it. Now we're being asked to to celebrate it. Any and every belief, uh, no matter how perverse, will be tolerated, except that of evangelical Christians. So spiritual decline, but also spiritual defiance. Uh, We see that in the last two verses of chapter 16. In Joshua's day, uh, God had flattened a city. Uh, The boys and girls don't know what city it was. The city of Jericho. And Joshua had laid down a curse on whoever would rebuild it. Uh, Joshua had warned, At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest shall he set up its gates. And here, at the end of chapter 16, A man called Hyle of Bethel does exactly that. He shakes his fist at God and does exactly what God's word told him not to do and experiences exactly the consequences that God's word told him he would experience. Deorof Davis sums it up like this. He says, the government is pumping raw paganism into Israel and it looks like Baalism will win the day and extinguish Yahweh's remnant. We don't need to change much to apply it to our day. Uh, The government pumping in raw paganism, and it looks like the little remnant of God's people will be extinguished. 
So it's a time of utter apostasy from God, spiritual decline and spiritual defiance, a nation that should know better shaking its fist at God. And then in walks Elijah. Chapter 17, verse 1. In this, the bleakest of situations, God has his man. Just when it looked like things had hit rock bottom, in comes a man who we know nothing about, but will come to be one of the best known Bible characters. And again and again in history, we see that just when people think that the cause of Christ is at its lowest, that it's never been worse, God sends reformation and revival. Take the early 1700s in England. Not that long after the days of the Puritans, uh, not long after what we could look on in many ways as a golden age, but a politician visited all the major churches in London and said that he didn't hear a single sermon which had more Christianity in it than uh, in the writings of the Roman philosopher Cicero. He said that in most sermons, it was impossible to tell whether the preacher was a follower of Muhammad, of Christ, or the Chinese philosopher Confucius. And it's the same in our day. You go into many churches, Church of England, Church of Scotland. Does this man follow Muhammad? Does he follow Christ? Does he follow Confucius? Drunkenness and gambling were the norm. Uh, Newborn babies were left on the streets to die. Sports like bear baiting entertained the masses. Tickets were sold to public executions as if it were the theatre. A bishop said in 1736 that morality and religion in Britain had collapsed to a degree never known in any Christian country. That was 1736. In 1737, George Whitfield began preaching and God sent revival. So things were bleak, bleak, bleak here and God turned it around. And notice as well, uh, just in passing, that God attacks the very area where Baal was meant to be strongest. Uh, Baal was a Canaanite storm god and fertility god. He was meant to control the rain and make the crops grow. So the declaration that there will be no dew or rain except by God's word is a direct attack on Baal. If you're familiar with the story of Elijah, you'll know that a great contest is coming in the next chapter. Uh, The boys and girls did it with the the Go team at the Bible club. Elijah will go up against the prophets of Baal to see who's really the true God. Uh, But even uh, before that, we know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, The question at issue in verse 1 is is summed up in Elijah's opening words in Scripture. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Uh, That is a question. Does Baal live or does the Lord, the God of Israel, live? And God shows his power by stopping the very thing that Baal was meant to be able to provide. And so, brothers and sisters, no matter what you may face in the week ahead, do not despair. 
Uh, do not despair. Uh, no matter uh, what you uh, read or hear is happening uh, right now or is coming down the pipeline. We may be living in 1 Kings 16, but 1 Kings 17 may be just around the corner. God could start working spectacularly tomorrow through someone like Elijah who none of us have heard of today. Of course, the great thing about Elijah was that he didn't wait until God turned things around in order to obey God. He just got on with it and God used him to turn things around. I've talked about the the 1700s in England. In the 1960s and 70s in China, Chairman Mao tried to eradicate Christianity during the Cultural Revolution. Today, China has one of the highest Christian populations in the world. Uh, Whether in scripture or in history, we don't see God letting dark days go on indefinitely. At any particular point, things may get worse before they get better. But in an instant, God can change the whole picture. So while we must be realistic, we're not to be pessimistic. Sometimes as Christians, we can give the impression that God is looking at the world, saying, well, it's just too tough, it's too bleak, there's nothing I can do. When in fact, he could change the whole situation in the blink of an eye. And Elijah believed that and he acted on it. Do we? Do we? So firstly tonight, the situations God works in. Secondly, the people God uses. The people God uses. The study of family history is big business today. The global genealogy industry is worth 5.4 billion a few years ago, it was worth $3 billion. In the next 10 years, it's forecast to reach $15.8 billion. People want to find out who their ancestors were, where they lived, and what they did. But if you try to draw a family tree for Elijah, you're not going to get very far. We're told nothing about his grandparents or even his parents. We don't know if he had brothers or sisters. In fact, we don't know anything about his background. He just appears. It's almost jarring as if we've we've missed a bit. Uh, Like we're watching a film sequel having not seen the original. Verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, and we want to say, well, we'll slow down a bit. Who's Elijah? Uh, when did God call him to be a prophet? We know where he's from, but that's about it. And normally in the Bible, God does give us more information. Uh, but here Elijah just bursts through the doors and onto the pages of Scripture. So why aren't, aren't we told more about his background Well, surely the reason is that it's not important. The main thing is that the message, or the main thing is the message he brings. Uh, So no matter how famous Elijah is in terms of Bible characters, what is most important about him is not who he is, but the message he brings. Perhaps you're, you're pretty new to church, and sometimes you think it might be nice if you could trace 
family history in, in this church or, or another church going back generations. Uh, and some people get quite into that stuff, but actually none of it matters. It, it doesn't matter who you are, who you're, who you're descended from, who you're related to. Of course, there's nothing wrong with celebrating God's grace, God's faithfulness down through the generations. Uh, We delight that God often works in families. But as Matthew Henry comments here, it doesn't matter where people come from, but what they are. It doesn't matter where people come from, but what they are. And so it doesn't matter if someone is the first Christian in their family or if they have a long Christian heritage. It doesn't matter whether someone has been in church for for two months or whether their family has been in the church for 150 years. The important thing about Elijah isn't who his parents were or what school he went to or what church he grew up in, but the fact that he's obeying God here and now. Uh, Many uh, churches have congregational histories, uh, and if you read through those histories, you'll often see the same names cropping up again and again. Families who have provided elders and deacons in, in, in nearly every generation. And you, you can look at the church t- today and some of those names will still be found serving Christ faithfully, but others are on the fringes and others are completely gone. Not in that church or any other. And if they die unconverted, that great heritage will mean nothing to them apart from making them more guilty. So your history doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you responded to an altar call 10 years ago or became a church member 30 years ago. The important thing is whether you're following Christ today. Who Elijah is fades into the background. The important thing is God's word. In fact, you could say God's word is a focus in in nearly every verse. In verse 1, Elijah comes and declares God's word. In verse 2, God's word comes to Elijah. Verse 3, we're told what that word is. In verse 4, God speaks and tells Elijah how he's going to survive. In verse 5, we're told that Elijah does according to the word of the Lord. In verse 6, the ravens obey the word of the Lord. Uh, Aren't we rebuked when we read of, of dumb animals in Scripture doing what God commands them to do? Uh, and we don't. And in verse 7, the brook dries up because God has said that there will be no rain in the land. God's word is central. Who Elijah was doesn't matter. And there have been famous figures in the history of the church uh, whose uh, writings and preaching have been blessed to many and they've been asked to be buried in an unmarked grave because they've realised that they don't matter and the only legacy they've wanted to leave is lives transformed by God's word. But there's something else uh, that's significant about Elijah's entrance here. Uh, How does he describe the Lord in verse 1? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Those are amazing words. Who is Elijah physically standing in front of when he says that? Uh, The Lord, the God of Israel, before whom I stand. 
Well, he's standing before King Ahab. He's standing before a a powerful king who has the power of life or death over him. But Elijah is unfazed. He is not intimidated because he realizes that ultimately he is standing before the Lord. An old Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, comments, How small Ahab and his court must have looked to eyes that were full of the undazzling brightness of the true king of Israel. How little the greatness of Ahab. It would be like redoing a room in your house and then inviting Prince William round for tea and thinking that he was going to be blown away by your DIY and by the, by the, the, the colour scheme that you'd chosen. That's how impressive King Ahab looks to one who knows the King of Kings. It explains a lot about what Elijah will do in the future. He's had a glimpse of the glory of the true king. Uh, So no earthly monarch, no matter how powerful, is going to impress or intimidate him. This week you may stand in lots of different places before lots of different people. uh, But will you remember who you are always, always standing before? That you're always standing before the true king. Whether you're tempted to be embarrassed by your faith or you're tempted to to fly off the handle uh, at someone or uh, snap back at someone or or share a juicy piece of gossip. Remember the one you're standing before and if you see the sun shining in its brightness, the moon and stars should fade from view. God uses someone with no great heritage to bring his word, but he uses... Someone who realises who it is that he stands before. Just before we leave this this second point of the people God uses. It's important to ask what God is doing here in light of all that he'll call Elijah to do in the future. And what we see is that the one who will bring God's word to others must first learn to trust it himself. And we're all in the position in different capacities of being called to bring God's word to others. Uh, whether that's publicly or, or privately. But we must learn to trust that word that we would share with others. God promises in verses 3 and 4 that he'll provide for Elijah. But he'll do it in an unusual way. Ravens were unclean birds for the Jews. And ravens are omnivores. Uh, It would take something supernatural for a raven not only to bring meat to a specific place, but not just to eat it. But before Elijah can call others to trust in God's word, he has to trust it himself. And it may be that before God uses you to, to tell others about his word or about his purpose in their suffering, He'll first leave you with nothing but his word so that your knowledge of it is no longer theoretical. He might bring suffering into your life so that in years to come when you minister to hurting people uh, then you will both know that you're not simply quoting platitudes 
but that you've tested it in your own life. So we've seen the situations God works in. We've seen the people God uses. Thirdly and finally, we see the methods God uses. The methods God uses. Often we just see the end result of things. If someone has baked a cake, we just see the end result. We don't see all the the labour that has gone into it. All the work in the kitchen that has gone on uh, in the build-up. And what we have in verse 6 is the result of a process. Uh, We could easily read these verses and think, well, all that Elijah does here is turn up and announce God's word and famine comes. And yet if we, if we, pierced, if we piece together rather a, a few other parts of the Bible, we see that there's more to it than that. Because we read earlier in James chapter 5 that Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain. And so at some point here, although we're not told, Elijah has been praying fervently for rain. Or fervently that it wouldn't rain. Why? Why pray for that? Well, Elijah may have been reading in Scripture and realized that a lack of rain is what's known as a covenant curse. One of the punishments that God threatened to bring in his people if they turn from following him. God says in Deuteronomy 11 that if the people worshipped other gods, the Lord would shut up the heavens so there would be no rain. So Elijah was someone who knew God's word and whose prayers were directed by God's promises. He was someone who had his newspaper in one hand and the word of God on the other. He realised that what was happening was something that God had warned against. Uh, And that God's word had laid down specific curses for a time like this. And so he prays in light of that. This is a pattern we see again and again in scripture. Prayer and God's word, they're not kept in, in separate boxes. But God's word is to shape our prayers. And so fueled by God's promises, Elijah prays fervently. And Elijah's prayer is focused on the glory of God. Uh, focused on the glory of God rather than his own comfort. How do we know that? Well, because if you pray fervently for a drought on your own country, it's unlikely you're going to be able to avoid it. And sure enough, when we get to verse 7, the brook dries up. God's people can't expect to be exempt from suffering in the world as a result of from the suffering that's in the world as a result of sin. And Elijah knew that. He prayed down a judgment that was going to affect him as well. Because he was more concerned with the honour of God for his own well-being. He knew that it was going to take something drastic to wake the people up to the true God. And so he's prepared to do what it takes. God's honour matters to him more than his own personal well-being, his own personal ease. What about us? Well, God might not call us to live through a physical drought, 
But would we be, be willing to, to stick it out for the long haul in, in spiritual drought conditions? Uh, perhaps a church without much outwardly attractive about it. Uh, a part of the world without many uh, other Christians. Elijah was a man like us. Uh, and look how much God achieved through one who was willing to follow his Lord, no matter how uncomfortable it made his life. Is our failure as Christians to have an impact on those around us to the level that we should? Is it because there's a certain level of discomfort that we're not willing to endure? So we've seen tonight the situations God works in. However discouraging things may be around us, we haven't yet returned to the days of Ahab. And even if we had, God could turn it around overnight. So there's no room for gloomy Christians. We've seen the people God uses. People whose background does not matter as long as they obey God. And people who have an awareness that whoever they're talking to or working alongside, they're actually standing before the great king. We've also seen the methods God uses. Elijah's appearance before Ahab isn't as out of the blue as it might seem. But this is a man who knows God's word, who's been reading and praying God's promises. But just as we close, doesn't God's surprising intervention in the dark days of Ahab remind us of an even greater intervention? Uh, the intervention of one about whom the religious leaders said, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Jesus' intervention came not just to a people whose spiritual life was ebbing away, but to people who were his enemies, to those living in open defiance of God, but he went to the cross for them and for us. God worked in the most surprising situation by the most surprising method to bring life to the dead. And now he uses nobodies like us to bring this great message to the world. Elijah was a man just like us. Can it be said that we are people just like Elijah? Amen. Well, let's praise the, the great King before whom we stand with the words of Psalm 34. Psalm 34, the first six verses, starting in page 63, tune Perfect Way 185. So Psalm 34, 1 to 6, tune 185. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Verse 4 says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who do him fear. Well, surely Elijah here in verse 1 provides a great example of what it means to fear the Lord. It's to be aware in every situation of life that we are really standing before the great king. It's to say whatever those around me are doing, whoever is demanding that I dance to their tune, 
It's to say, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand. And if that's all we remember this week, surely that that one thing would transform us, that all the time we are living, uh, we are standing before the living God. Uh, Then verse 6 over the page, the message there is that those who truly seek the Lord will not lack any good. Elijah here demonstrates that even though he had to live through a famine, God provided for him. He lived through something that he had brought down on himself in a way, something that he had prayed for. And what he prayed for comes, and just because we pray for something and it comes doesn't mean it's easy. But God supported him through it. God gave him what he needed to keep going. Maybe not all he wanted, but God gave him what he needed to keep going. So Psalm 34, 1-6, we'll stand and sing praise.